Good morning again. We are doing something we haven't done a lot of. That is, we are, we are going to cover something we've already covered, but in more detail. Sin and temptation. Yay! So if you will turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to hone in on just a few verses, 12, 13, and 14. But I want to remind you, as I've been saying every week, Corinth and the Corinthians were messy. And I think the American church is messy. And one of the things that we're looking at in chapters 8 through 10 is Paul is explaining to them the true nature of freedom. What does it mean to be free, right? Um, They were using their freedom more as a protection to do what they wanted. Remember, they they were wanting to participate in eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, which is their right. In fact, at the end of chapter 10, Paul even says, it's fine if you buy it at a meat market or even if you're at a meal where that food had been sacrificed to an idol, as long as you're not making somebody stumble. But his real issue is not, his real issue is this. Are you using your freedom to get as close to the edge as possible? Or are you using your freedom to glorify God? True freedom glorifies God. And that's what we want to see this morning as we look at temptation. And and are we trying to get too close to the edge in our lives? So please look with me, starting at verse 12 of chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us understand how much you love us, how much the freedom you've given us truly allows us to flee temptation and run toward righteousness. Or that is not punishment. That is beauty. That is the way it was supposed to be. Help us to see that this morning. Amen. Uh, it's very hard to read the quote on the front, so I'm going to read it now. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, a beautiful collection of sermons uh, that he preached to the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, We must realize the nature of sin and also its consequences. All the antinomianism throughout the centuries, that means all of the lawlessness. There's an antinomianism or is a group of Christians who would say, you know, Jesus came, we can do whatever we want, right? He says all of that, or all the tragedies that I've ever followed, the perfectionist movements. Perfectionists are people who say, I can get perfect, right? I can get everything figured out in Christ, this side of heaven. I cannot sin. All of those, he says, have really arisen because of false notions concerning sin and a failure to see that not only is sin a power and something that which leads to guilt, but that there is such a thing as the pollution of sin. And I talk about that from time to time, but I really think that's the struggle the Corinthians have. They're thinking in the framework of guilt. Jesus set us free. There is no more condemnation, right? All things are lawful. So, what's the big deal of eating food sacrificed to idols? Paul is saying yes, but not all things are beneficial. And sin has a power to pollute you and corrupt you. And if we don't realize that and don't respect that enough, 
it's very possible for Christians to struggle in their Christian lives in amazing ways that we would avoid if we just simply grasped the power of sin. So said another way, I want to ask this question. When you think about what Jesus gave you in salvation, he gave you forgiveness of sins, right? You were adopted in Christ, but he also gave you the call to righteousness. Are you serving a whole Christ? Are you serving a Jesus that not only freed you from sin, but called you to righteousness? Paul is saying that's what the Corinthians were called to. That's what we've been called to. So let's unpack that this morning. Unfortunately, we're going to talk about sin and temptation. But I think it'll be very helpful because what you'll see, I hope, is that when we realize the true nature of sin, a lot of what Paul is teaching here will make a little bit more sense, hopefully a lot more sense. So we're going to look at a few different things about temptation. And the first thing we're going to look at is how temptation is um, connected to sin, right? I mean, I think that's an obvious statement, but what are you tempted to do? right? If I say, are you tempted? You're tempted to sin, right? Sin is not a popular word anymore. Lloyd-Jones, in that same sermon, says at that point, he said for 100 years, now it's been 150, we've been inundated with teaching, kind of evolutionary-driven teaching that says human beings are getting better. Now, for those of us that know what postmodernism is or whatever, that's sort of in flux. But I think most of us come through the educational system of this world going, yeah, we're getting better. We're, we're learning, right? We're studying the arts and culture, and eventually sin will be eradicated. Only that's not the word that's being used. Humans are getting better. The pro- and in fact, the very word sin, which was very prevalent in, in the culture, even in the non-Christian culture, just the worldly re- culture, is removed from writing anymore. No one talks about sin, right? You don't go to work meetings where you go over how to have conduct in a meeting and how you respect each other. No one says, you know, watch out for sin, right? It's watch out for, um, I don't know, hurting feelings. We, we use different language now. Sin is the name of it. What is sin? Um, sin is, it is it's so much more than the little bits of things we do, like, oh, I did that thing, right? Sin is, it's every part of our being that's in anti, that's against God, right? Loveless says it's an organic network of thoughts and words and behaviors. You can add habits, rituals that all conspire in our flesh and are rooted in an alienation from God. That is what sin is, right? Here's another way to think of sin, what it's not. Um, You've all heard of the word shalom. I've talked about that from time to time. Most of us go, sure, it means peace, and it does. It's a Hebrew, Hebrew word for peace, but it really has a lot more associated with it than just peace, right? It's not just the peace symbol, let's all get along. What Hebrew fathers meant by the word shalom was eternal flourishing. It was everything working well together. Um, we, we know when things aren't working well, right? It's instinctual. You can see when you read a negative article about parents who aren't feeding their child and they get arrested, you're going, that's not the way it's supposed to be. There's an, in, there's an innate sense in all people that there is a way things ought to go. And for Christians, right, with Scripture, the Bible gives us pictures of flourishing. And, and sin is anything that vandalizes that, anything that goes against that. And this is, the, this is what I think the concern is for Paul. 
The problem for the Corinthians, in my mind, and what I think we can do, is we separate out the, the legal side of sin, oh, I did a wrong, and the pollution of, right? For example, we have the Lord's, um, we have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say, don't even get angry. A lot of people will take that and think, ah, so all sins are equal, right? And they are from the perspective of guilt, right? To be angry and call your brother a fool it makes you as guilty of sin as murdering somebody. But certainly we would say the pollution, the corruption, the effects of sin are far worse with murder, right? How many of you would rather your brother call you a fool versus murder you? I'm pretty sure everyone would raise their hand for the first. I hope. So we understand that that, that principle in, in sin. The reason I'm talking about that is Paul's fear for the Corinthians is that they've lost sight of the corruptibility, the corrupting nature of sin, and so they're wanting to get, to get so close to the edge using their theology, right? Uh, do not, t- you know, all things are lawful. I can, I can do this, right? If, if those poor, weaker brothers understood that there's no such thing as an idol, they wouldn't mind, right? And yet Paul's saying, you're getting so close to the edge. Be very, very careful. That's why in chapter 9, Paul explains the difference between freedom and rights, right? Freedom is different than rights. Paul's saying, you guys are using your rights for selfish gain. I have a lot of rights. Chapter 9, that's what he unpacks. I could be married. I could receive money for what I do. There's all these things I'm allowed to do, but he ends the chapter by saying, but I beat my body, lest after preaching the gospel I be disqualified. In other words, I don't want sin to overtake me in such a way that it disqualifies my message of the gospel. Do you fear sin's corruptibility? Is that something you're afraid of? Uh, recently, we were watching um, a documentary on Chernobyl. It was really fascinating. It was actually a documentary on uh, the effects of uranium, but they spent some time in Chernobyl. Remember, Chernobyl is the uh, nuclear fallout uh, in Czechoslovakia, the former USSR, um, and they've they, they've really they've drawn like a perimeter around it. You know, you cannot go in. There's three different townships surrounding the reactors. Only work people can go in, and scientists, and they can only go in for a short amount of time with a ton of perfect, uh, protective gear. And it's really a fascinating thing. So this this host of this show and another woman, they went in and showed us like the hospital where the uh, emergency workers were taken. And they all passed away from this uranium poisoning. And it showed the clothes and they had the, the ticker, you know, that makes the noise every time it got close to uranium. And it just showed you like destruction. And another interesting aspect was these towns were lived in and they were flourishing and then in a moment, empty. People had to leave. They had to go get new homes. And there's like Ferris wheels and, and shopping mall, all these places that are just overgrown. Kind of like uh, Life After Humans, if you've seen that show. It shows you, if you ever go out of town, it's, it, you can see it too, you come back and your house is overgrown in just a week, right? So the world is sort of coming against you. Why do I say that? Because I want us to understand, before we talk about temptation, we have to have an understanding of corruption, that it can get you. That it can take hold of you, right? 
in Hebrews 11 or Hebrews 12, we've quoted from it a few times. Um, he says, "Throw off all the sins that entangle you." Do you have a category for that, or do you find yourself saying, "I'm good, I got Jesus, I'm safe"? True, legally, if you're in Christ. But but the problem Paul is warning us of is you can be tempted, and do you have that respect for that temptation? So. Man, I love these kind of sermons. Next week, we'll just focus on like one verse, just on sin. This is great. Okay, so sin corrupts you. I want us to have that category because without that category, I don't think we can understand temptation. And that's what I probably didn't spend enough time on last week. What is temptation? Let's look at the passage. Verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. This word temptation means to test. It means to try. Okay. Now, it means more than that, but that's its original meaning. In fact, in the Old Testament, the, the word that would, was in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament so we can read back into the Hebrew and see that's the same word God used for testing Abraham. Abraham's test with Isaac is it's a test. It's a way to see, is this person really walking with God? Now, God isn't the one that creates a temptation, but he allows the temptation. And, and temptations come, and they really test whether you walk with Jesus. I don't think any of us like that. You know, I think that's very overwhelming. Um, I think we don't want to grow that way. That's why we sang that song again. I asked the Lord that I might grow. We don't want to grow through testing, right? We want to grow through, like, Bible study. I went to the Bible study. I learned some new information. I came to church. I grew. And, and you will grow. God uses those means of growth, means of grace for growth. But you grow, really, when you're tempted, right? So we think of some of the heroes of the faith. How about David? David was tempted. And, and why I bring up David um, is because what Paul is talking about in this temptation is more than just the fleeting temptation, right? Sometimes we think of temptation as being, you know, walking to work, and all of a sudden, I saw a casino, and I just went in. That can happen. Brian does that every morning, right? But it's just for breakfast. True story, he says breakfast there. Okay. But, but... That, that's an example of a momentary temptation. We all have those. But probably Paul is dealing with something a little bit more intense. So think about David. If you studied that passage where David falls into temptation, at first glance it looks like he's just hanging out at a roof, looks over, oh, there's Bathsheba. What's she doing? You know? And then he gets tempted. And then he, from, from that moment of temptation, he sends people to go get her and bring her to him. And I mean, Okay, but when you start that passage reading it, what does it say? In the time when kings go out to war, the, the writer is letting you know, David set himself up for this. David knew, I mean, he knows Uriah. He was one of the mighty men. He probably knew his wife. They had some social functions, right? And he thought, hey, when the mighty men and the men go off to war, I'm going to hang out here. I'm a king. And it just sets up the, the situation for you. And so what I want to talk about just for a brief moment is the idea of sin, of, of temptation, excuse me, as not just being the one-off stuff, but more like what we see in Corinth as being lifestyle sorts of temptation. 
Okay? For example, we would say things like there's such a thing as particular sins, right? One-offs. And then there's lifestyle sin, right? Entire, like, you became, you're in the mafia is a lifestyle sin. I use that because I don't think anybody in here is that. I don't want that person, he's talking about me. Okay, if you're in the mafia, I am talking about you. But what about temptation? We don't, do we have the same category? You have momentary temptation, but there's a different kind of temptation. If you look again at our passage, it says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide a way of escape. There's this sense in which uh, there are these temptations that you enter into. John Owen, in his famous work on temptation, talks about from Matthew 26. Remember, Jesus goes into the garden to pray, asks his disciples to stay there, or, and just kind of keep watch, stay awake. He goes and has the most agonizing resistance of sin he's ever had, right? He resists temptation to the point of sweating or bleeding out blood droplets. He comes back, and they're asleep. And he says, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Don't fall asleep. And of course, we know that Peter that very night denies him three times. If you're in Christ, the encouragement is that with these temptations, you're not cast out. What I'm asking you to do is quit thinking about, am I in or am I out? Am I going to heaven or am I not? That, let's quit thinking that way. The question is, are you walking with Jesus? Like, are you seeking God's glory? Are you freed by the gospel in such a way that you're like, I just don't want to fall? Not because I'm afraid I won't go to heaven, but because I don't want to fall because it's bad to fall. It's bad to get stuck in sin patterns. It corrupts me and my family and my culture. So what are some temptations, lifestyle temptations? Um, how do you, I, would, I mean, it would be really great to just go around and take, years ago I thought, you know what, we've moved a few times I would like to write an article called Sins of the City. We grew up in Edmond, very materialistic, so I could sit there and write, and we moved back to Edmond. You could write tons of, well, here's the temptations if you live in Edmond. But in Colorado, it's completely different. No one cared about their home. It was, it was like the homes were ugly, but they spent all their money on their hobbies, right? But don't look at the house. I know it's pink, and I haven't bought a piece of furniture in years, but you should check out my new set of skis or my ice climbing gear. And, and it's, those aren't sins. Okay, these are tendencies, right? But I think it's healthy to kind of go, you know, how am I getting sucked into my culture, to my surroundings? I, I was listening, there was like um, a news blurb on anthropologists who look at trash to figure out how people live and study people. What would your trash tell us, right? Okay, that probably wouldn't work great, but just use that concept to just go, what am I doing with my time? What am I doing? What kinds of lifestyle situations am I in that, though they're not wrong, might open doors of temptation? It's just a healthy exercise, isn't it? We're trying to, we're trying to find a way to, to make sure we don't just drift off the map. Have you ever looked at a photo? This is not the nostalgia concept. Where you look at the past, you know, I looked a lot better there. You know, and maybe it's aging. But maybe you're just like, no, I remember I was working out. Just that flash of like, you know, I, I cared more. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you were like, oh, what was going on, right? We just lose sight of ourselves, don't we? We just get caught up into our lifestyle. Our rights are being explored. And maybe we're moving beyond where we want to be spiritually. An old journal entry. Man, I really, 
prayed when I, when I wrote that. And You know, did you ever, have you ever had that moment? At that point in my life, things just, I was closer to Jesus. What's happened? Paul's saying, it's very easy. The culture can come in. And for the Corinthians, they hadn't broken any rules, but they were really asking the question, how close to the edge can we get? Years ago, we had some very dear friends that were in dental school, uh, and they were living on, like, nothing. I mean, they were doing a great job. They moved to a part of town in Oklahoma City, by the, if you know Oklahoma City, by the fairgrounds. Um, they were going debt-free. And we had a Bible study with them, and they shared a story of Rich Mullins with us. And it's a, it's a beautiful story. Rich Mullins is awesome. I don't know it perfectly, but he... Um, was, I think, partly motivated by Brendan Manning's work on Abba's Child, and the gospel really ignited him. And so he's a Christian musician, right? And um, I believe he was in a PCA church in, in um, Franklin, Tennessee, and he realized, I'm making money. I'm successful. This is not going to go well if I don't do something to kind of set up parameters. And so he goes to his session and says, I want you to take our money my money and, and management for me. Now, we don't want to do that. Our deacons, yes, not our elders, trust me. Maybe Yeti, maybe Tom, I don't know. You don't want Doug and I to manage your money. But the point he made was not, you don't have, you're not like totalitarian, I can make decisions, but here's what I really want. I just want spiritual guidance on how much should a single man, he was single at the time, live on. And I think it was like 26000 a year. I mean, he was making a lot of money. Imagine a Donald Trump accent right there. And so, they did this, and he just really set up his life with these parameters. His story goes on where he lived like on an Indian reservation. I mean, his life's amazing, and he dies in a car accident very young. But people looked at Rich Mullins and go, there is a person, a Christian artist, who's living the gospel. Right? He's, he's recognizing, not because of the behaviors he did, but he's recognizing something very important. Sin can take over. And I don't think we do that. I don't think I think that way. I think I think, gee, whatever income I bring in, my, I'm telling my temptation now. The temptation is to push yourself right up to the edge. Entertainment, how you use your time, how you use your resources. And the gospel says, no, you're free. What does that mean? You're free to not become enslaved to all that stuff. It's a challenge. And this will have the, I mean, the applications in this sermon can't get too particular because Paul himself says, verse 15, I speak to those, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, I can't tell you what I mean. I'm just telling you the principles. Right? That's what, that's what Paul is saying, I believe. I can't tell you, I mean, there are some things I can tell you. Don't sacrifice in like a worship service where you're getting blood on yourself Demons are in there. Chapter 10, it's in there. Don't do that. But, you know, if you're at a meal and, that, and, and the meat was sacrificed recently for that meal, you're still okay, right? Unless someone brings it up, then you're not okay. You know, it's really like, what about meat markets? You can go to the meat market and get the meat. And, let, you know, in there he doesn't even say, if so, you know, you can go buy. The point is this. It's hard to really draw the implications out. I want you to know if we have the principles. Sin will corrupt you. Playing around with it, flirting with it, getting as close as you can will harm you. Right? Have you ever seen those TV shows where I'm thinking like The Biggest Loser as an example, but there's this one that I cannot remember the name of it where 
it all happens like in one episode. That's, that's great for my attention span. I don't want to watch an entire season and kind of track how much weight you lost. Give me one show where you went from being what you didn't want to be to where you got. Remember that show? Anyone that's out there? Anyway. But what would always happen is that person would invite the host in, and there was just that annoyingness, right? You can't have that. You can't do that. You've got to get rid of that food, right? But the person was so motivated. They finally come to this place where they said, look, take it out, right? And I, I think spiritually, it's not bad to get there every now and again. You know, when's the last time you've stopped doing something because you love Jesus? Not because you thought you had to. Not because someone told you that was the thing to do. You just said, I love Jesus, and this thing, for me, might not be healthy. I'm taking a break. Every day I'm on Facebook, one of the Facebook friends is like, okay, Facebook family, I'm getting off Facebook. You won't hear from me. Has anyone seen those posts? Has anyone done that? I'm always like, should I say good job? Will they see it? Are they off already? When does this start? And Jesus tells us, and Paul, of course, is telling us, how do you now, third point, sin, temptation, how do you deal with it? How do we deal with the temptations in our lives? Watch, Jesus says, and pray. Okay? Watch and pray. Let's start with prayer. Pray without ceasing. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody give an explanation of that for me that was hopeful. Usually it's like, you can't really do that. Have you ever kind of, you know, it's like, it doesn't mean like you're walking around like this, you know. But on the other hand, I... Here's what Paul means by praying without ceasing. Prayer is the language of partnership with your Father. Jesus was constantly praying. Like everything he did, it's like I and the Father, right? It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie, I cannot remember the name of, where he's like, he's not an accountant, he's the spy. You know what I mean? His wife doesn't know. What's that called? So I was going to say Total Recall is way off. It starts with a T. But remember the scene where Tom Arnold's talking to him and he's in the ballroom with the earpiece, right? Okay? That's praying without ceasing. Constantly, like, talking to God in the middle of your life. Like, not crazy, okay? You don't have to move your lips. Um, But this idea that everywhere I go, God is with me. In fact, let me ask you. This is going to be really hard. Imagine, like, the last time you sinned in a way that you feel really bad about and it was wrong and you've even prayed about, confessed, and ask yourself, did I view myself as being tethered to my father in that moment? Maybe you were by yourself and you thought, hey, I'm by myself. Wrong. God is with you. Right? Do you, do you have that view of God? Do you see yourself as tethered to him? Walter Marshall, I'm going to read this quote. I read last week, but it's so helpful. He says, do you want to be free from fleshly and worldly lusts that war against your soul and hinder you from godliness? I hope everyone would say, yes. If you do, do not just believe that gluttony, drunkenness, and immorality are filthy abominations, although they certainly are. Do not just believe that the pleasures, profits, and honors of this world are vain and empty, although, again, they are. But go beyond this. Believe that you are crucified to the flesh and to the world. Believe that you have been made alive, raised, and seated in the heavenly places 
together with Christ. Believe that you have pleasure, excuse me, believe that you have pleasure, profits, and honors in Christ to which the best things in the world aren't worthy to be compared. Wow. Believe that you are a member of Christ, the temple of His Holy Spirit, which we learned in chapter 3. A citizen of heaven, a child of the day and not of the night. Believe that it is simply below your royal estate and dignity in Christ to practice the deeds of darkness. How much do you make of your status in Christ? How much does that drive you? Your royal estate. Is that what drives your faith? If not, pray, repent, return to Jesus, right? But then secondly, watch. He says, watch and pray. We started with prayer, but watch. What should you watch for? Right? Watch for, um, watch for the areas of your life Again, where where restraint seems to be not seems to be lacking. Uh, John, again, John Owen in his in his uh, great book Temptation gave a few areas, a few seasons to watch out for, and they're a little bit surprising. One was seasons of prosperity, like Rich Mullins, right? When things are really going well spiritually, financially, smoothly, your marriage, whatever's going well, he just all Owen is saying is just be on the watch, be on the lookout. Be ready for temptations, okay? Also, when things aren't going well, I joked with Doug during the week as I read that, I'm like, everything he says is there's never a time not to watch. So basically, the season you're in right now, watch. Be watchful of. What does that mean? Are you as aware of your patterns as you are of other people's? It's amazing how good we are picking up on other people's foibles. We're amazing at it, right? You know, we can, we can even sense the, the motives behind people's, re, you know, we think we're so amazing. And then we come to ourselves and we're like, I don't know. I just walked in that donut shop and walked out, you know, or what? A, I don't know. I shouldn't have said that. Donuts are illegal. Eat your donuts. But we, we do. We, we, we sort of just, part of the reason why we're so tempted so often is we just have this mindset that I'm invincible. I'm not going to fall. That's standing without viewing yourself as dependent on Jesus. Right? Are you watchful? Have you invited the Lord in? Have you said to the Lord, I see my propensity for rebellion? Does that give you fear? Right? What does that make you feel like? So, if I could sort of summarize what we've been saying, it's this Don't view sin as simply a legal wrong, view it as corruptible. Going back to Martin Lloyd Jones, the errors that we make often stem from our view of sin. Either it's completely um, non, it doesn't matter at all, antinomianism, right? Doesn't even matter. Or I can achieve, I can, I can fully fulfill the law, perfectionism. Lloyd-Jones says, no, you've got to understand that sin has pollution, it can corrupt you, and you are longing for shalom in your life. Is that your longing? Are you wanting to be healed? Are you wanting your life to be improved? Do you even believe that's a category when you think about Christianity? I was reading the story in Mark, uh, and I want to close with this so you can relax. We're going to close. The plane's going to land. We're going to get out of here alive. Mark tells the story that Jesus is in the home in Capernaum. He's trying to rest, but 
everybody came to him and he was teaching. And remember the paralytic, most of you know the story, being brought to him by his four friends. And they get there and they're holding the paralytic on the cot and they can't get in. And so they climb somehow on the roof. Now roofs in that time were flat. They actually had access to the top. It wasn't like they cut and destroyed the roof. But it was still an unusual way in, right? And so they removed the roof and came in. And also in the middle of a teaching, it's just kind of like rude. And they lowered this person before Jesus. And, and can you heal him? And in the most ironic, well, one of the most ironic places in the Bible, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. You know, and you're like, that's awesome. But he's paralyzed. And why does Jesus do it? Well, in the room, there were some scribes, some legal people, and they were like, blasphemy. Who can forgive sins? They were correct, right? They were correct. Only God can forgive sins. Now, all of us are going, yeah, I kind of want my sins to be forgiven, but I want to be able to walk. They're saying, no, actually, the more difficult thing is to forgive sins. At least that's what they thought they were thinking. Because then Jesus, reading their thoughts or maybe hearing the murmur, says, what, you think it's harder to forgive sins than it is to heal people? And he says, you are healed. Get up and take your cot and leave. And he stands up, right? He stands up and he can walk. And then everybody was amazed, right? When his physical body was healed. What's the point? Sin, the vandalism of shalom, affects you not only in your spiritual condition before God, but it's equally connected to your struggle in the, in the life around you. And we long for heaven. We long for full healing. That paralyzed person eventually passed away. Right? Eventually their body quit working. But I will guarantee you this, that every single morning from the day he was healed until the day he went home to be with Jesus, and he woke up and his feet hit the ground, he was praising God. Right? He knew who he was. And I think sometimes we in our faith only stop at forgiveness of sins. And here's the problem. That is everything, but we've diminished it to almost mean nothing. We've turned it into this Teflon shield. My sins are forgiven. Cross my fingers, you can't get me, that kind of stuff. And Jesus is like, in that story, forgiveness of sins and total healing go hand in hand. What do you long for? Pollution of sin and guilt of sin are two properties of one thing. Don't just want the guilt removed. Long for that corruption to be removed as well, do you? That's a sign of knowing you're in Christ. Knowing that you're a Peter, not a Judas. Knowing that you may struggle and you've even rejected Jesus, but unlike Judas, you return. Right? I, want to, I just want to end with a warning. If you've ever thought to yourself, you know, it's okay that I sinned. Peter sinned too. And he was forgiven. Or David sinned, and look what he got. You might be closer to being a Judas. I'd be very careful if that brings you any comfort in your sin. Neither David nor, Ju- nor Peter looked at Jesus and said, it's no big deal. They came weeping over their sin. And they were, of course, restored. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wander. In fact, if we're honest... When we're not communicating with you, often our hearts are drifting. Maybe not in sin, but maybe getting too close to that edge. We need you, Spirit, to open our eyes.
Not that we would go around feeling guilty, but that we'd go around feeling saved. That we would go around feeling redeemed. That we would go around knowing our royal priesthood in you, Jesus. That a redeemed person longs to have the sins removed, not just guilt, but also pollution. Where we want to know we're forgiven in our justification, but we equally long to see actual evidence of redemption in our lives, in our conversations, in how we use our resources, and how we love each other. Father, I pray your spirit would make that our desire. Lord, if that is not our desire, I pray we'd run to you freshly, repenting of our sin, of unbelief. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.